we are body and soul, and we need rest for both. And sometimes we neglect rest to our own harm. Uh, think about physical rest. Sleep is a, is a great gift from God. It's necessary for a healthy and happy life, yet we can so easily neglect sleep. Sleep deprivation can cause serious problems, including memory issues or mood changes, anxiety, depression, weakened immunity, increased blood pressure, low libido, even increased risk of death. And as beloved as coffee and... Uh, and Red Bull may be, they do not satisfy our body's need for physical rest. Now, many things can disrupt uh, our sleep, so we need to know the best ways to find physical rest because it's so important for us. I found Dr. Chris Winter's book, The Sleep Solution, to be helpful, and I learned some great stuff, but uh, I just need to apply what I've learned now. But finding rest for your soul is similar to finding rest uh, for your body. It's even more important, in fact, and yet it's easy to neglect thinking about our soul and how it rests. We all should think more about how our soul rests. Our soul, uh, it gets weary and burdened and we need to know how to find the spiritual rest that we crave. It's very tempting, even for Christians, to look outside of Christ and outside of God's word for soul rest. People look for it in rituals or ceremonies, traditions, superstitions, imaginative theology, even technology. But if we are actually going to find true and lasting rest for our souls, we need to learn how from God and his word. Now, soul rest is a big topic, but I want to give you simple, and the most important ways to find rest for your soul. They come from Jesus, and folks, they work. They work. My main point has four simple components. You will find rest for your soul when, number one, you know your soul is weary and burdened by your inability and sin. Number two, you come to Jesus in true faith and receive rest from him. Number three, you take the yoke of Jesus upon yourself and submit to him in all things. And four, you humbly learn from Jesus. Now, before unpacking those, I want to address the deep and immovable foundation beneath these four components. This foundation secures our soul rest in Christ. And the foundation is not you choosing to rest or working to find rest because soul rest is a gift from God given in the person and work of Christ. The foundation of soul rest then is God's sovereign and gracious will and good pleasure. Understanding this foundation is essential for you to obtain the rest you desire and it actually encourages greater rest in several ways. This is an important foundation. And the foundation is simple, God's sovereign and gracious will in salvation. We can only scratch the surface of this profound subject and how it helps you rest, but I want you to see that there is an indivisible bond between God's sovereignty in salvation and the certainty and security of our rest in Christ. Now, I'm glad that you came back after last week. 
last week was, was tough. But Matthew takes us from Jesus' startling words of condemnation into the comfort of God's sovereign choice in election. Election is the beautiful and comforting truth which secures our soul rest in Christ. Secures soul rest for sinners. Verse 25 says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And how Jesus addressed God here is significant. First, Jesus confessed praise to God, or we could say that he was filled with gratitude and he gave thanks to God. And we'll understand why in a moment. The why is important. Second, Jesus addressed God as Father in verses uh, 25 and 26, which again alluded to his divine sonship. God is his divine Father. He is God's divine Son. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to explain his exclusive relationship with the Father, which does something important. It confirms his divine identity as the Son. Third, Jesus also addressed his Father as Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth, which calls attention to the Father's supremacy and sovereign reign and rule over all things and leads right into God sovereignly and graciously revealing himself to sinners in verses 25 and 26. How Jesus addressed God in this prayer tells us significant things and connects to the doctrine of election which follows. Now, why was Jesus giving thanks and praising God? Well, listen to verses 25 and 26 again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or we could say your good pleasure. Now, first, who are the wise and understanding? And what does it mean that God has hidden things from them? Well, right before this, Jesus denounced Galilean cities because they saw the mighty acts of God but did not repent. Their hearts were willfully closed to the gospel of the kingdom. God is, is not malicious. God is not unfair to reveal the gospel to some and conceal it from others. God was gracious to send them Christ whom they willfully rejected. For God to keep, and you have to pay attention to this because this is a very important point, for God to keep the gospel of the kingdom hidden from unrepentant sinners and to not sovereignly open their eyes is an act of his divine and good justice. God is not obligated to save anyone. God is not obligated to save anyone. It is just and it is good and it is fair and it is right for God to leave sinners in their sin as an act of his judgment. Now, that may seem unfair to our human hearts. It may be to you until you carefully consider two things. One, God's holiness, righteousness, and goodness. God does no wrong to anyone. And two, that human beings are vile and they're inclined by nature to hate God and their neighbor. 
and that they deserve God's wrath. The salvation of only one is infinite mercy and grace. The wise and understanding are arrogant and unrepentant unbelievers who think they are wise and understanding, who think they don't need Jesus or his truth, who think they are self-sufficient. The wise and understanding are those who esteem themselves more than they esteem Christ. D.A. Carson commented, quote, the contrast between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught, unquote. That's the contrast. Jesus is making the point that human reason or intellect is not the means by which one comes to know God. John Calvin rightly commented, quote, prudence is not condemned as far as it is a gift of God, but Christ merely declares that it has no influence in procuring faith. The meaning, therefore, is that no man can obtain faith by his own acuteness, but only by the secret illumination of the Spirit, unquote. And he's exactly right. No one comes to faith by their own wisdom or their own understanding. That's why Jesus used infants to illustrate his point. It is the Holy Spirit who works faith in sinners' hearts, by the gospel. The Holy Spirit mysteriously reveals God's glory to someone and they respond because having the eyes of their heart open and faith granted to them, they can't help but repent and come to Christ. When God reveals himself to them, sinners are transformed. Sometimes, uh, sometime when you have a moment, read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. It nicely parallels Jesus' prayer here. But here's verses 26 through 31 because I, I think they relate. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Later in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul added, let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Independent and capable people don't come to Christ for rest. Only dependent and incapable people do. Why would God sovereignly and graciously choose to reveal the gospel to the foolish, weak, low, and despised? Why would he do this? To ensure that no human being that is saved could boast in anything but God's sovereign grace. Paul strengthened his point and added, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If God chose to reveal himself to the wise and understanding, they would have cause for boast. 
But the foolish, weak, low, and despised, they need to be given wisdom because they don't have it. Anyone who esteems himself as wise and understanding does not realize his own foolishness and need. So in his self-esteem and in his brash self-confidence, he remains condemned. He does not receive Christ. He does not repent. So who are the little children in verse 25? Well, little children are illustrative of unaware ill-informed, weak, and helpless sinners who feel their helpless condition. Now let me ask you, do you know of a little baby or a little child who is truly wise? I don't. I've never met any. No, they need consistent correction. Parents are sometimes very surprised at the words that have to come out of their mouths to correct their children. No, 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 please please don't put that in your mouth. No, 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 you may not ride in the trunk. No, that's totally inappropriate to do in public. Things like that. We surprise ourselves. Jesus takes little children and he uses them, infants, if you will, to illustrate helpless, weak, needy, vulnerable, uninformed, and dependent people who are entirely unable to achieve salvation on their own. They can't figure it out. They can't do it. Again, D.A. Carson rightly concluded, the contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. Jesus said, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, what's he referring to? It was God's sovereign and gracious will and pleasure to reveal the gospel of the kingdom to little children, to the helpless and weak and uninformed and dependent sinners who were utterly incapable of finding salvation and soul rest for themselves. Yes, God absolutely justly condemns, but he is also kind and pleased to save. See, those who esteem themselves little children, who think of themselves as vulnerable and dependent, who know their utter dependence upon God and who long to receive from God, they are the ones to whom God reveals the gospel. What does God, why rather, does God do it that way? Why would he do it this way? To showcase his sovereign and infinite mercy and grace and to prove that salvation does not depend on human ingenuity and acuity. If any part of someone's salvation depends on something worthy in that person or done by that person, God's sovereignty and grace are undermined as is the person's soul rest. This is why in Ephesians 1, Paul so plainly links predestination first to God's love and second to God's purpose, the purpose of God's will and not anything done by or found in man. Calvin was exactly right, quote, in choosing little children rather than the wise, he has regard to his glory. For the flesh is too apt to rise, and if able and learned men had led the way, it would soon have come to be the general conviction that men obtain faith by their skill or industry or learning. He's right. But by saying that God reveals the gospel 
to little children. Jesus is saying that faith is not obtained by human skill, industry, or learning. Calvin continued, in no other way can the mercy of God be so fully known as it ought to be than by making such a choice from which it is evident that whatever men bring from themselves is nothing. And therefore human wisdom is justly thrown down that it may not obscure the praise of divine grace. And that last line is noteworthy. Human wisdom is justly thrown down that it may not obscure the praise of divine grace. Jesus was throwing down human merit or wisdom so that God's sovereign and gracious will and pleasure in salvation was exalted and magnified. And then Jesus strengthened his point in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, or we could say to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Father grants all things to the Son, and the Son possesses supremacy in and over all things. Supremacy over Satan and demons. Supremacy over disease and disability. Supremacy over all nature. Supremacy over body, soul, life, death, salvation, judgment, heaven, earth. He is supreme in wisdom, supreme in knowledge, supreme in understanding, supreme in counsel, supreme in power, supreme in peace, supreme in love, supreme in in all things. Jesus will later say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, the Father alone has exclusive and complete knowledge of the Son. The Son has exclusive and complete knowledge of the Father. Within the Trinity, there is exclusive and complete knowledge, relationship, and love. No one outside of the Trinity knows God unless God chooses to reveal himself to them. Throughout Scripture, we see God choosing to whom he will reveal himself. So, brothers and sisters, if you know God the Son, it is because God the Father has gracious, sovereignly and graciously revealed him to you because no one knows the Son except the Father. If you know God the Father, it is because God the Son has sovereignly and graciously revealed Him to you because no one knows the Father except the Son. So the only way that anyone knows the Father is for the Son to sovereignly and graciously choose to reveal the Father to them. Apart from the sovereign and gracious choice of the Son, no one knows the Father. You would not know God if Christ had not sovereignly and, and graciously revealed him to you. The revelation of God to human hearts is the son's choice. Can you see that in verse 27? The choice is not yours. 
The choice is not mine. The choice is the son's because he possesses supremacy and knowledge of God. So when the truth of the gospel of the kingdom is revealed to you, brothers and sisters, and you comprehend it and you receive it by faith and you find rest in Christ, it is the triune God who gets the glory because it is the triune God himself who is revealing himself to you because he loves you. Let me strengthen this point for you. If we jump to Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11, which we'll eventually get to, we hear the disciples ask Jesus an interesting question. Why do you speak to them in parables? You see, Jesus put out these parables that were confusing everybody. They didn't understand what he was saying. So why would he speak in parables that nobody would understand what he's saying? Why didn't he just speak more plainly so that everybody would know exactly what he was saying? And Jesus gave his answer, and this is what it was. To you, he says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Right there it is. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven are divinely revealed. They are not figured out by worldly wisdom. By the wise and understanding, Jesus, it was him who very kindly and very, very powerfully and very graciously gave understanding to his disciples. Even later in Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Peter was exactly right. My question is, how did Peter come to know that? How did Peter come to make that confession of the Christ? And and one could say, well, he saw Jesus do all those amazing miracles and things, and, and he just came to believe it. Well, yes, but see, that would also be true of all the unrepentant unbelievers who saw the same thing and didn't repent. So something else is going on here, and we need to know what that was. And and Jesus so graciously explained what it was. Blessed. Are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven? Do you understand? Peter was a little child, an infant, one to whom God sovereignly and graciously revealed Christ. And this, this, brothers and sisters, is the true foundation for your soul rest. This is the foundation. God reveals God to you and you are sovereignly and graciously drawn into his soul rest and he secures your soul rest for you. I'll I'll let the words of Dr. William Hendrickson summarize it. Quote, the words indicate that the salvation of God's children is dependent not upon anything in man but solely upon revelation. Solely upon revelation. Your salvation, brothers and sisters in Christ, your soul rest depends not on anything in you or done by you, but solely upon God's revelation of Christ to you. Jesus rejoiced in the sovereignty of God's grace. Do you rejoice in the sovereignty of God's grace? Jesus thanked God for his sovereign work. Jesus thanked God for his fatherly grace to reveal the gospel to the unworthy and ignorant and unable. Jesus slandered human wisdom, knowledge, and ability. 
and at the same time magnified God's sovereign and gracious revelation, Dr. Hendrickson continued, and that this revelation in turn is based solely upon the will and delight of both the Father and the Son, for not only as to essence but also as to purpose, Father and Son are one from start to finish. Therefore, salvation is based on sovereign grace. From start to finish, therefore, salvation is based on sovereign grace. You have to understand this. It is the Son's pleasure to reveal the Father to you. And it is the Father and Son's pleasure to give you true and lasting rest for your soul. If you are laboring so hard to find rest... If you're out just scouring the world for a place to find rest for your soul, if you're just working harder to find rest, then you don't understand how to truly rest. Rest is something that you receive when the Son reveals the glory of His Father to you and you come humbly with an open heart and with open hands to the Son. Now this may lead some of you to ask, But how do I know, pastor, that I am elect? How how, how do I know that God has actually chosen me? How do I know that I have actually received Christ by true faith? Well, dear ones, our soul must not be anxious at this doctrine. It is meant to comfort us. We must simply listen to Christ on how to find rest. We just simply need to listen to Jesus, so let's do that. You will find rest for your soul when, number one, you know your soul is weary and burdened by your sin and inability. Who is Christ inviting to come to him? All who labor and are heavy laden. Well, who are they? They are weary souls living with a tormented conscience. Weary souls laboring under man-made traditions and laws. Weary souls laboring to earn favor with God by doing his law. Weary souls tired and burdened and disheartened because they are living under the weight of their sin and guilt. Weary souls exhausted from trying to do it only to fail to do it. Weary souls frightened at the threat of God's judgment and wrath upon them. One study Bible described the labor and burden as loaded, burdened with this guilt of sin and fear of judgment, only made worse by the legalistic teachings of the Pharisees. Those who cry out, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I can't do it. My moral failures are too much for me to bear. I cannot think of God's judgment and his wrath upon me. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is to those, those people, that Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in their spiritual exhaustion, they say with joy, he is inviting me to come and to find rest in him. I will go to him and I will rest. Jesus invites the spiritually parched. So those who aren't thirsty, who who don't sense that they need a drink, they're not invited. 
They won't come to drink from the fountain of life because they cannot feel their dehydration and thirst. They are content to drink from cisterns that hold no water. In John 7, 37, Jesus stood up and he cried out on the last day of the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty? Then come to me and drink. Jesus invites the spiritually thirsty, the spiritually hungry, the spiritually tired and weary and exhausted, and he will bring them into his rest. Now, we have to be careful because Jesus is not talking about employees laboring for 70 hours a week under some tyrannical or demanding boss. He's not talking about laborers out there doing physical labor, exhausted, come back exhausted from doing manual labor. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is an invitation and a promise to those who are burdened by their sin and burdened by their struggle under the law and those who fear God's righteous judgment. I agree with J.C. Ryle who said, the beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are in the way to hell and to be willing to be taught of the Spirit. Calvin aptly said, let our miseries drive us to seek Christ. Our miseries must drive us to seek Christ, to find rest in Him. If you are ever to find rest for your soul, it will be your miseries which drive you to Christ to find rest in Him. Those who can't feel the weariness of their soul, those who can't feel the burden of their sin, those who can't feel their inability to do the law or the weight of God's imminent judgment are not invited and they will not come. Only the wretched, pitiable, afflicted, and powerless hear the words, come to me. And only the wretched, pitiable, afflicted, and powerless are drawn to Christ by sovereign grace to find rest and refreshment in him. You will find rest for your weary soul, dear one, when you know your soul is weary and you go to Christ to receive what he has promised you, rest for your soul. He promised the little children, I will give you rest. So if you actually esteem yourself a little child and that you go to Christ, he will indeed give you rest. That's receiving grace through faith. Number two, you will find rest for your soul when you come to Jesus in true faith and receive rest from him. Are you coming to Christ for rest or are you looking for rest somewhere else out there in something outside of Christ? Are you looking to the means which Christ gives you to rest? Do, do you expect to find rest in God's word? In the gospel, in theology, do you expect to find rest in preaching and the sacraments and prayer, do you expect to find rest in the deep fellowship of, of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, maybe you're looking for rest elsewhere. Well, you won't find it. There is no true rest anywhere else. You must come to Christ with a weary and worn out soul with knowledge of your sin and guilt and you must receive rest from him like, like a little nursing child depends on her mother. When the giver of rest calls for you to come to him and promises to give you rest, his invitation and his promise is gentle 
sincere and gracious because he is gentle and sincere and gracious. All who are weary, all who carry the burden of their sin and guilt, all who fear God's just wrath, Christ gently, sincerely, and graciously invites to come and to enjoy rest in him. And folks, I think it's something we must continue to do. We continue to come to Christ. He continues to give us true rest. Our souls, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, they do sometimes become quite burdened, weighed down, discouraged, anxious, worn out, and we must come in faith expecting our beloved Lord to reveal the Father to us in even greater glory and beauty from his word and that our Father will be good and our Lord and Savior will be good to us to give us rest. Let's keep coming. Number three, you will find rest for your soul when you take the yoke of Jesus upon yourself and submit to him in all things. Submit to him in all things. Many people have little rest for their soul because they do not obey Jesus as they should. It unsettles them. Soul rest is found in obedience. Therefore, disobedience actually troubles and burdens the soul. Let me share a little bit from me to you. I have never found rest for my soul in lust or anger or covetousness or idolatry or insubordination. Never. Never. I have found anxiety, fear, insecurity, and dismay in these things. I, I, I may have had some thrill or some fun, but I have never found rest for my soul in disobedience. Have you? In fact, when I disobey, it actually excites doubt in me over whether I actually belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin does not serve us. It doesn't do anything but unsettle us and make us insecure and unsure. And so I must keep coming back to Christ with all of my mess and I must come to him in repentance and come to him in faith to receive the rest that he has for me. You see, perseverance in the faith, perseverance is essential in the Christian life. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a wooden crossbar that they laid on the shoulders of beasts or on a man uh, to, to distribute the weight of the burden. And I've historically thought about a yoke in terms of a heavy burden, like an exertion as you're bearing this yoke and you're pulling. And then in my reading, I encountered in a commentary that came at it from a different angle and it was very helpful to me to rethink some of this. A yoke is helpful. A yoke helpfully distributes the weight so that the burden is easier to carry. A yoke is a good thing. Now, if we think of the yoke of slavery and bondage to sin, it is an immovable and crushing weight. You won't move it. You will get crushed under that yoke. But the yoke of Christ, you have to notice that it is easy and the burden is light. It's a good thing to bear the yoke of Christ. The yoke does sometimes refer to slavery, but the Bible is right to say that we are slaves of Christ. 
And he cares for us. His, his yoke is very different than the yoke of the law, the yoke of bearing to have to do righteousness perfectly yourself, the yoke and burden of the covenant of works. But, but the yoke of Jesus and the burden of Jesus, it is light and it is easy. In fact, it is a delight to the soul. So Jesus does not beat down and overwhelm the weary. Jesus does not further exhaust the spiritually exhausted. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is lowly in heart. Jesus welcomes the weary into his presence to give them the rest that they seek by coming to him. I want you to hear this loud and clear. Obedience to Christ is never burdensome. Obedience to Christ is never burdensome. It always promotes our joy and our rest. Another way to talk about rest is refreshment. Obeying Christ by his grace, by his spirit is refreshing to the soul. It brings rest. It promotes joy. We could even say that it gives relief from spiritual anxiety and trouble. Now here, Jesus is likely referring in this passage here to Jeremiah 6.16, if not only indirectly, and it says this, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Yahweh invited Israel to ask for the ancient paths, the good way, and commanded them to walk in it. They would have found rest for their souls, but they refused him. They refused to go his way. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He is the good way. He came and walked in the good way and had rest. Rest is his. He is the rest giver. No one should expect to find soul rest until they are fully committed to submitting to the will of Christ for them. I believe that many Christians during this pandemic are finding little rest. And I include myself in this are finding little rest because they are more concerned about whether or not to submit to the government and all that comes along with that more than they are concerned about how to submit to Christ in everything. I've really struggled with this, lost my perspective almost every day. Is he not gentle and lowly? Is he, has he not promised us rest in him? Is his yoke not easy and his burden light considering the glories awaiting us in heaven? Is this not a momentary affliction for eternal rest in Christ? What is today? Today is what we call the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. A day to rest from our evil works. God is a God intent on giving his people rest. If they would only come to him for it, if they would only trust him and do what he says, oh, how we should more fully value the Lord's day and what it means to rest. I love what Dr. Hendrickson wrote. It's so Heidelberg-esque, and it should be. He was Dutch reformed, hallelujah. He says this, what he is really saying, therefore, is that simple trust in him and obedience to his commands out of gratitude for the salvation already imparted by him is delightful. It brings peace and joy. 
The person who lives this kind of life is no longer a slave. He has become free. We are free, brothers and sisters, to rest in Christ. The apostle John told us in 1 John 5, 3, we would do well to listen closely for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are not burdensome. We are free to do them with joy. One note said, quote, following Christ is the best life that could ever be lived. For he is a gentle and humble king who serves his people. He loves you so much, he will serve you by giving you rest. How good he is. Our Lord is good. Jesus serves his people by giving them rest for their souls. Number four, you will find rest for your soul when you humbly learn from Jesus. You humbly learn from Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you know that it is those, those who rest best are the students of Jesus? They have rest. The students of Jesus. Learn from him, dear ones. Come under his mentoring, come under his doctrine, come under his teaching, listen to his word, devote yourself to learning his doctrine, to learning his theology, trust him to reveal the Father to you in his word. You see, you don't know, I don't know, he knows, he knows, so submit yourself to his teaching, submit yourself to his doctrine. Every letter of the Bible is read, so go through Genesis to Revelation, listening to him teach you and watching him reveal himself to you. You see, you and I were little children who need the Savior to teach us, lead us, help us, disciple us. We need the rabbi, we need the son of God. Go to him. Go to him and find the soul rest that you desperately need in his doctrine. I think one of the biggest struggles as I bring this in for a landing, one of the biggest problems and struggles in the church today is that we sometimes think that we can find rest in something outside of Christ. We get confused. But Simon Peter was exactly right. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, let us go together to the Holy One of God for he alone will give us rest for our weary souls.